KRCL, Salt Lake City. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, a show for community builders, a show for punk rock farmers, and a show for DIY creatives. And we're on your community connection every weeknight at 6 p.m. I'm Nick Burns. eBay's actually here to help me tonight. I'm going to kind of run things solo, but I got him to help with the buttons. So eBay, thank you. On the show tonight, it's going to be a great hour. We're going to talk about silent steps for peace. And we have folks to talk about this mindful meditative walk that's going to come up at the Peace Garden there at Jordan Park. It's on October 22nd. want to talk about that. Also welcoming back to the show, Mary Dixon. She's here. Again, everyone knows Mary on Radioactive. She's a downwind survivor, and I want to say a tireless advocate and activist for downwinders. want to talk with Mary a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine and sort of the way this entire atomic mess, I want to say, is being framed uh, when it comes to what's going on in Ukraine, because not only are there the bombs and the threats of bombs and the belligerence and the sort of, <clears throat> I'll say, saber rattling, but there's also the atomic power plants and what's going on there. Back half of the show later, we're going to we're going to catch up with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Uh, the manager, Heather May, will be joining us and also we'll welcome back Salt Lake Tribune reporter Leah Larson. She is the beat reporter on the Great Salt Lake and she's just back from studying the terminal lakes in California. And there actually might be some optimism, some things that have helped maybe not destroy those lakes quite so quickly. So maybe there's a little optimism when it comes to the Great Salt Lake. But right now, Josh Hill, um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. You were one of the founders of the True Mountain Sangha, which I, I guess I would say spiritual community of Buddhists. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about founding a, a Buddhist community. Um, well, I would say we kind of brought it back to life more than founded it. Okay. It um, initially, a community called the Salt Lake Community of Mindful Living that was in the same uh, lineage of practice as us. And um, as that kind of uh, dissipated, a friend of mine and I went down to Deer Park Monastery for a week-long meditation retreat and talked to the monks about how we could kind of rebuild that community. And how big's your community now as it grows and rebuilds? How many people involved? Oh, I'd say we've got maybe about a dozen people that meet on a regular basis. Because there are a number of Buddhist temples and Buddhist groups that are active in Utah. And I know, I know the LDS folks tend to get all the ink. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of other spiritual activity going on, including you all. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. think that's totally cool. And Marina, it's Grossman, correct? And again, you and I traded a couple emails about this. Should we call it a walk for peace, the silent steps? Tell me what's going to happen on October 22nd. Well, I'm not quite sure exactly what will happen. Okay. Um, but my hope. What are you open to having happen? <laughs> well, what I hope will happen is that we will have a lot of community members come and join us and that we can walk together in a peaceful manner. Um, if anything, they may not come and walk in the way that we do. They may not come and do the walking meditation, but hopefully they'll get out into the park. They'll experience nature. Um, hopefully they'll bring their families. 
Um, it's not a walk your dog in the park <laughs> event, so um, please leave your, your animal friends at home. But um, the idea of it is just to tune into ourselves, into our breath, to learn how to ground ourselves, um, to recognize when our nervous system is activated. And for me, the reason this is so important is because um, as someone who is engaged within the community and um, who is concerned about the state of our world, uh, we need to continue to show up. We need to show up for ourselves, we need to show up for our children, our loved ones, and we can only do that if we take care of ourselves. And um, I recognize that there's been a lot of anger, uh, there's a lot of um, polarization, and we're not gonna be able to meet a middle ground if everyone's angry. There are folks who are, can't even pay their rent, and then there's other people that are stocking up their arsenals. And so we want to be able to come as our individual self with our own circumstances and still be able to show up as a collective and um, not, I guess, to make meaningful change together. Well said. And I want to I want to drill in on something you just talked about this all this anger in the world, which is, you know, everything from, you know, Putin and Russia being belligerent to, you know, people shooting at people when their fast food order doesn't come out right. There's so much anger around. But when I read about this silent steps for peace and I think about people just sort of meditatively being present, I think about a way to sort of be nonviolent toward the self. There's mm -hmm. so much discussion of the outward anger. You know, somebody's going ballistic on Twitter or whatever. But it seems to me that maybe what you're getting at can involve an inner peace that, that you know, we have a lot of anger towards ourselves, whether it's pandemic stress, school grades, kids, I don't know. But it just seems like that's something that you're getting at here is, is how do we turn the peace inward? Well, and it's a practice. It's a discipline, just like okay. with anything. And that's really the point of the walk. It's practice. It's collective, but it takes individual effort to show up and to slow down and be hopefully turn off your phone. <laughs> I was going to say to be quiet is a huge yes. challenge these days. Well, you use the word practice. Can I ask about your own? How long have you been involved in this sort of mindfulness practice? Um, so my formal practice began in 2016. So a long time. Um, I've done my share. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there have been people that have been practicing for a long time. Josh has, he's created the True Mountain Sangha, um, which is based off of the Plum Village lineage, which is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's work. And uh, this, this walk for peace is not our idea. This is something that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, Martin Luther King, the beloved community, we have Gandhi. You even go back to 1929, the Mao movement in Samoa. So this can go back. <laughs> there are peace movements that have happened throughout time. And um, it, it does, it begins with ourselves. It's inner peace, it's individual, and it's trainable but it's practice. It's trainable and it's learnable. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But it is so, and, and maybe Josh, I'll throw this to you. It is so, for many people, mm-hmm. it is so non-Western, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's so easy to think of Eastern as the other, right. which of course it's not. But yet, it, for many people, you know, I talk to people and they're like, oh, I wish I was more Buddhist because I wish I didn't feel that. Right. And I'm thinking, well, maybe you'd be more Buddhist if you just felt it and moved through it. Absolutely. And so that seems to me a challenge for many people is they they want to walk the talk. They want to do the practice. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of hard to get out of these Western ideologies. Yeah. And I think that's one of the real great things about Thich Nhat Hanh is he spent a lot of work um, trying to make this accessible to Westerners. I mean, he spent um, a lot of years studying comparative religion at Princeton and philosophy. And so, you know, he has a lot of really good insight into the Western mind and a lot of his writings and teachings and approaches to these practices have been catered uh, to Westerners. So I think that's really a wonderful gift that he's given us. That's a good point. I mean, that Thich Nhat Hanh is someone who bridges probably if maybe more effectively than some other people. And I noticed mm-hmm. the poster for your event has a Thich Nhat Hanh quote, mm-hmm. um, which I just love. You know, if we are peaceful, if we are happy, we can smile and blossom like a flower. And yeah. it, I mean, it's such an interesting combination of the personal, the political and the public. Absolutely. Because a flower is personal and public both in such an amazing way. Absolutely. Yeah. And another one of his quotes um, is to have peace in the world. We need to have peace in ourselves, you know, and I think that's really um, where this practice comes from, is that if we can be a little bit more introspective and create space for whatever feelings are coming up and to slow down and maybe not to be so goal driven, but to be able to embrace the moment and what is, um, we're able to settle down and be at home with ourselves. And that completely influences the way that we interact with everyone and everything around us. I mean, that seems to be what we've been talking about the last 10 minutes is how do you be at home with yourself? Absolutely. Because it's so much easier to be angry with everybody else Mm -hmm. and not face yourself, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Tell us about this walk. How do you get involved? Do people need to sign up? Again, don't bring your dogs. It's not a big walk fest <laughs> with your pets. Right. But it's a it's a silent steps for peace at Jordan Park, 22nd, 10 o'clock in the morning. Yep, at the Peace Gardens. Um, so, yeah, there's no sign-up or registration or anything. Uh, we're just going to show up at uh, 10 a.m. And basically, we just want people to slow down and enjoy the space around them and um, enjoy their breathing and try to be as mindful as possible for a little period of time so they can kind of take a slice out of their busy life and, and enjoy. Oh, yes. Oh, it makes me just sigh. Um, <laughs> Marina, have you done things like this before, these kinds of walks? Um, I do my own practice. I actually just came back from a a six-day, five-night silent retreat in California um, a couple weeks ago. And so I was able to practice there. Um, But I do want to say for the park, um, for the walk, you can come anytime between 10 and 1 to practice. Uh, It takes about 30 minutes if you're going to do the slow, mindful walking, 30, 40 minutes to get through the 
we're just going to do the regular path okay. in the in the peace gardens um but yeah come anytime between then and hopefully we'll just keep going around and uh hopefully you'll be there oh, I'm think- <laughs> well actually i'll be actually i'll be out of the country by saturday so oh. i regret <laughs> but this is at the international peace garden at jordan park which for folks is a thousand south 900 west in salt lake between 10 and 1 on saturday it seems very Buddhist, no sign up, just show up. Yeah, right? Just show, just show up, up no and signs. be still. Yeah. Right? And y- wherever you are, you can join us. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I probably will. Do it through the airport. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to try and not be angry at the airport. I love it. And for folks who are interested and want to learn more about True Mountain or become involved in what you do, where should they go? Um, so we have a website uh, that's uh, truemountainsanga.weebly.com. Um, you can just Google search True Mountain Sangha, and it'll pull it up if that's easier. Okay, and I totally recommend the link on your website that's labeled Wake Up. I want everybody to click that link Absolutely. and look about waking up because it's all about being mindful. So thank you both for taking time, and best wishes between you, me, and everyone staying peaceful. Thank you. Thanks, My Nick. pleasure. Joining us now on the show, Mary Dixon. Hi, and welcome back. Thank you. Oh, thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you. Um, relentless activist, I longtime stop. advocate. Well, seriously, I mean, yeah. yourself a downwinder mm-hmm. impacted your family seriously. Yes. Yourself seriously in terms of health. Yes. And yet you still show up. You're still active. You're still talking. You're still speaking up. And you're still smiling about all this. <laughs> is is <laughs> there a secret? Um, yeah, you know, the only way to, to get through it is to do something about it. So if I'm doing something about it, I always feel better. And I have to say I've met the most amazing people doing this work, absolutely amazing people. And are, and do many of them come from the downwinder community like yourself? You know, some do. A lot don't. Um, I just went to Chicago and met with a woman from... DePaul University, who teaches, actually, everyone should have these courses, Atomic History and Ethics. And um, I met another woman who's been involved in this from the University of Chicago, retired now, but amazing people I met, amazing. I I helped teach a film course many, many years ago that looked at representations of the Adam in movies, right? And and you could see that back in the 50s that, you know, our Adams were the good Adams, but oh, those right, rusty right. Soviet atoms were the bad atoms. Exactly. Um, and yet still the poison yet. was the same yeah, everywhere. Yeah, destroyed two major oh. cities. So, But Mary, I wanted to chat with you briefly because this keeps coming up on the news, this notion of Putin said this and Putin right. said that and Putin's right. going to drop a bomb or he's going to do and this. And is he crazy? Is he not? Would he do is it? He Will sick? he not? And, and to me, it, I, yeah. I, I don't mean to sound cynical here, but to me, I'm to the point where it's like, oops, Putin said it again. Right. Oops, Putin did it again. And then the news is full of some pundit who's a retired general or something. So you get this military look and they're always kind of the same. It's like, well, we don't think so, but you never know. He's a nutcase. And well, for you, and, and, you in know, the middle for of this, me, watching yeah. this as someone who's been deeply affected yeah. by the results of nuclear weapons, nuclear testing specifically, um, you know, it's it to me. It's it's utterly immoral and madness that he even brings it up, and that people keep talking about it 
as though it's normal. There's nothing normal about it. And, and as you say, the military pundits are yapping away. And where are the humanitarians? That's who we need to be hearing from, humanitarians and educators. Because when I look at this, Nick, there are so many people who don't even know our nuclear history. Mm-hmm. the nuclear history of other countries. They don't know that we're still living with these results. They don't know what it did to real people. They haven't heard the stories. And and unless you know that, you're not going to see a reason that disarmament is really the solution. Right. It's it's almost as if just because Putin keeps blabbering, it's become normalized exactly. or inevitable. Exactly. And it's not inevitable. It's not normal. There's nothing normal about it. And I, I you know, it, it kind of harkens back. We're about to celebrate, not celebrate, but commemorate, I should say, mm-hmm. the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 62, when we were on high alert, when tensions were so high, people really thought they might not wake up one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I people are scared. And it's kind of scare time now. I have a friend who lives outside Moscow. She's Russian. And she called me one day absolutely terrified that, that her country will do this. Hmm. And people there are very scared. Because you can't have limited nuclear use, as we know, that they'll get the fallout to. It'll come back on his own people. It will spark all sorts of madness and and disaster and so it has to be averted at all cost and people just need to start looking at the tragic consequences i mean these are real things that happen to real people and yet at the same time we lived through chernobyl close right. to close to 30 years ago now right. and now they are in limited cases letting the elderly move back in the exclusion right. zone because that's right. the only home they know. These, po- I mean, what's the logic? They're old anyway, but they're letting people. So again, there's this normalization of poison that's kind of scary. It's incredibly scary, and I think that a great deal of it has to do with denial. We don't mm. want to think that we could be poisoned. We don't want to think it could happen, you know. I'm, I'm reminded, you mentioned sort of that the history, that people don't know the history, and I'm reminded of how Many people seem hung up on Oppenheimer and right. his sort of quote from the Bhagavad Gita yes. that I am destroyer. I become death. And, yeah. And, and yeah, I become death. And there's sort of this I'm a scientist, but I sold my soul to the devil kind yeah. of attitude. Yeah. And, and I almost feel that surfacing a little bit in this, that we've sold our soul to the devil because we're normalizing this language now and this possibility has become normal. Right. And that's, I mean, I don't want to be angry, but it makes me fearful. (laughs) It makes me incredibly sad. I know I'm smiling, but it's incredibly sad. I, I just see this as, as a really difficult time. Um, Mm. And you were talking, Marina was talking about the anger. There's so much anger. And if you look at Putin, the anger that man's feeling because his war is not going well. And that he would resort to a desperate measure like this. I mean, it's a possibility. I have to say, I don't think it's a probability. Uh. I don't think it will actually happen. But you have to, like, see that it's there and it's being that ugly specter is being raised. <sighs> yeah, it's yeah. it's just difficult. And, and to me, maybe ever the optimist, I think, wouldn't we be past this? We lived with the downwinders. We destroyed I Bikini know. Atoll. We blew up Nagasaki and Hiroshima, yes. 100,000 people at a time. And, and maybe I'm just stupidly naive. 
you're not naive, you're educated. <laughs> oh, and, well. And I think that's, was, again, I have to say one of the biggest problems is education. I mean, it's, all of this is not taught in history books. You don't see it there. Um, hmm. You know, our politicians don't even necessarily know everything that went on. I mean, America detonated more nuclear bombs and killed more people with them than any other country. We conducted more nuclear tests than any country. We dropped those bombs on living people. And we bombed ourselves and in we Nevada for ourselves. 30 we years, including you. We bombed yeah. our own. 40 yeah. years, 40 years those okay. tests went on yeah. for 40 years. And people are still living with the effects. You know, uh. it's not over. And that's the other thing I think people don't really aren't aware of is they think that was in the distant past. It happened so long ago. No, it's not over. The genetic damage is passed on to other generations. You know, we will forever be living with fallout. Yeah. And, you know, there, was, there, were, there were all the photographs after Chernobyl of deformed babies, yeah. and there was all this horror, and that passed. Well, you know, and I was thinking uh. this today. I have a friend in Fort Myers who's tearing down drywall in poor communities. Uh -huh. And from the hurricane, and I said, you know, it's kind of already falling out of the news. And it's it's the media, in a way, will deal with crisis after crisis, and then and now this, and we move on to the <laughs> next one, as if that one's gone now, and the things aren't gone. People, real human beings, are still living with these tragedies. Yeah, I mean, Mary, that'd have to be a whole other show, right? It would because be. the, the, I medium, guess the whole media literacy The medium part, is the know? message, right? And it the medium, is. the it medium is. of television gives us the message of here, yeah. now, and immediate. Yeah. So, what's today's hurricane? What's today's bomb threat? Right. And, and now this. Let's move oh, on. Oh, I actually this. was watch. I don't hardly ever watch the local news, but a couple of years ago, the guy actually came on the weather local news here, and he said, "This is the biggest storm to hit Salt Lake since last week." You <laughs> <laughs> really said that. <laughs> oh. Oh, God. So, Mary, what's next for you? You were just in Chicago. I was. I um, I went back to D.C. earlier in September to lobby for, as you know, the bills to expand the compensation mm -hmm. for radiation exposure. We got um, two new senators and three new House members. It was a very successful week. Oh, who? Can you name them? Um, yes, Senator Tina Smith okay. and Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. They both signed on as co-sponsors on the Senate side, and I'll have to remember the names. There were two Republicans from Texas on the House side. Wow, cool. And yeah, yeah, and, and another from, oh, well, I, my brain's flooded. No, but, it's fine, but thank um, you for your work. Yeah, yeah, so we're making progress. I, I don't know. Um, we're up to 75 co-sponsors in the House and 22 in the Senate, which is big. Yeah. But the elections are coming up, and now this, the midterms, <laughs> so nothing much is going to happen because a lot they're on recess uh, to campaign. Um, and then, you know, you've got lame ducks, and mm. then you've got the holidays. So, and now this. And now this. Breaking news just yeah. in. Mary so Dixon, <laughs> thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you, Nick. Thank Always you. Always a pleasure. When we come back on Radioactive, we're going to continue to speak for the Great Salt Lake. Heather May will join us. She is the Great Salt Lake Collaborative Project Manager and also joining us again on the show, Salt Lake Tribune beat reporter covering the Great Salt Lake, Great Salt Lake rather, Leah Larson. So keep it tuned to your community connection, KRCL. And to get us there, Curtis Mayfield on KRCL. 
support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru, a community partner of YWCA Utah and the Stand Against Racism Challenge. Mark Miller Subaru loves diversity. Learn more at ywcautah.org and markmillersubaru.com. The Adopt-A-Native Elder Program gathers food, clothing, and medicine donations for Navajo elders living traditionally on the land. To learn more about the nonprofit and its 33rd Annual Navajo Rug Show and Sale online November 11th, visit anelder.org. KRCL has been a community megaphone and rallying local support for 40 years by reaching thousands of listeners every single day. If you own your own business, we are encouraging you to issue an on-air challenge grant during our Radiothon. Using KRCL's megaphone to issue an on-air challenge grant will not only connect you to the community, but it will also encourage others to show their support as well. Together, local businesses and KRCL can support each other, stay connected, and thrive. For more information, email trinab at krcl.org. This is Radioactive on your community connection. We're here every weeknight at 6 p.m. I'm Nick Burns. Joining us now, talk about the plight of the Great Salt Lake. It can't really speak for itself, but we sure are trying. And we also want to talk about a comparison to Mono Lake and Owens Lake in California. There's a number of these sort of basin terminal lakes in the West and around the world. And joining us, Heather May, the Great Salt Lake Collaborative Project Manager. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Fine, thanks. Thanks for being here. You bet. And I want to ask about the collaborative, but first, Leah Larson, welcome back. Hi, nice to see you again, Nick. Thank you. My pleasure. And again, you're on this beat of the lake. You just did this immense amount of reporting, a trip with the collaborative to California. Got to see what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it isn't all doom and gloom, although it's pretty easy to see it that way, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there are definitely two ways to look at it, but I came out of it feeling a little more hopeful ah, than when I went in. Encouraging. So Heather, the, the, the basic language that we read on the show, the Great Salt Lake Collaborative offers a solutions journalism initiative that partners news, education, media organizations, including KRCL, to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done to make a difference before it's too late. Again, all the stories are available at greatsaltlakenews.org. So Heather, tell me about the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a little bit of the past, the present, and maybe a touch of the future. You bet. Um, So we were started in January, and um, I like to think of us as a pop-up newsroom where we have um, combined the uh, reach and power of 13 newsrooms, um, the top newsrooms in the state, and they have decided that uh, covering the lake is more important than competition, than the typical competitive nature of journalism. So they have um, combined their power and produced about 130 stories since January. Um, They share those stories with each other, and then sometimes um, they work on stories together, uh, like this project um, in California that Leah with two other newsrooms. So this was the Salt Lake Tribune, um, Deseret News, and Fox 13. Um, the collaborative paid for them to go to California and report. How common is this kind of lack of competition and coming together to cover a big story like this? This, I think, is unheard of in Utah. Um, okay. I mean, there are different ways that um, newsrooms have worked together in smaller ways. But um, so we're one of 15 such collaboratives uh, funded by Solutions Journalism Network, one of 15 in the nation. Um, ours is the largest. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. So, Leah Larson, bring you in here. You are 
again, part of this. You just did this trip to California. Um, so I guess to jump in, tell me about your work specifically in the collaborative. This trip to California involved what might normally be seen of as your competition. Yeah, and before <laughs> I jump into that, I just want to give Heather a big thanks because I think the phrase we've used to describe her a lot is herder of cats. Her job has not <laughs> been easy getting all these newsrooms oh. to talk to each other and communicate and collaborate. Um, but yeah, so uh, I was one of the reporters that went along with Amy Joy O'Donoghue with the Deseret News. And then we had a videographer from Fox 13 and a photographer also from the Deseret News. And did you end up all printing the same stories, the, the work with you and Joy? Is that in the Trib and the Des News and elsewhere? It is. And I think what's kind of amazing is we, the Deseret News and the Tribune shared a byline, which I don't know that we've ever done before. I so, saw that. Yeah. Huh. Well, I think it's pretty exciting. So there's this huge lift you did. You all went to California. You toured around. Um, you looked at the lakes there. Again, Owens Lake goes all the way back to basically Los Angeles sucking it dry in about 1926, I want to say, mm -hmm. mid-1920s. If people have seen the movie Chinatown, they yes. kind of know the backstory, sad but true. Um, they're all terminal lakes. They all have this super high salinity. They're all in these basins which don't drain. But, it, but Great Salt Lake is by far bigger than all these others, so it seems like our problem is bigger. It is, yes. Um, Owens Lake and Mono Lake are about 100-ish square miles, and the Great Salt Lake at its historical average is about 1,700 square miles, yeah. so quite a bit bigger. Um, but I think some things that we have working in our favor is we still have a lake, unlike Owens Lake, which is totally dry. And um, even if the lake does go down, unlike Owens Lake, it can come back up. You know, if we get some weather patterns and you know like the lake will come up it won't always be dry like owens lake because the problem with owens lake is all its water is appropriated it's all sent down an aqueduct to los angeles and that water is all consumed in los angeles and it you know nothing trickles back to owens lake and there's no move to like give any of it back it's gone i mean that would really cripple los angeles which you know love or hate what they did they are a huge economic driver in our nation so we can't afford to lose that city and all those people yeah the uh, the people who live in los angeles probably have more clout than the people around owens lake <laughs> dust notwithstanding um but let's start with birds you know i'm guessing that most listeners know that the great salt lake is on one of the largest flyways in the world millions of birds some all the way from Cerro del fuego all the way to the arctic and back every year um, I wish I could travel like that every year, but it doesn't work for me. But these lakes in California are also a flyway with birds stopping. So w what are we seeing with those lakes and what's happening to the birds? Yeah, so all these salty lake systems kind of work together in concert. Birds will go from one to another to another or, you know, they'll, they'll kind of maybe, for example, Mono Lake and Great Salt Lake host almost the entire population of eared grebes in the hemisphere, but they split it about half and half. But uh, when Lo Mono Lake was going down in recent years, all, we saw all those birds coming to the Great Salt Lake. Oh, interesting. They, yeah. could, they could change their route. Yes. So, ah. you know, when that's what kind of makes these systems interesting. When one kind of dries up, well, maybe the birds will move somewhere else. But what we're seeing right now is they're all drying up. So what do the birds do, right? John Left, who you featured on Radioactive before, um, he told me that it's kind of like, you know, driving to Wendover 
on an empty tank, hoping that you'll fill up at the one lonely gas station along the way. But you get there, and there's a line of cars, and they're only giving out one gallon of gas. So what do you do? You have to start making some hard choices. Like, are you going to make it? Like, how far do you go? Where else do you go? How hard does anyone know any research about how hard it is for the birds to sort of change and say, no more Mono Lake, let's go over to Great Salt Lake? Is that a big deal for them, I wonder? Or is it just kind of a bird thing? Well, um, Mono Lake doesn't support the vast number of species that the Great Salt Lake okay. does. But, you know, we've seen them moving, like I said, with the eared greaves. Yeah. So we've witnessed that because they do counts. But, you know, I don't know that there's been a comprehensive study. The Audubon... In 2017, I think, they were, was pretty alarmed by this trend of the saline lakes disappearing. So they did their own study where they could kind of prove that all these saline systems are united. Um, so I think that was pretty groundbreaking research and really helpful to open people's eyes. And in terms of your work with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, was traveling to, co to California and looking at Mono Lake and Owens Lake, was that all part of the collaborative's plan or did that develop as the reporting moved ahead? Um, I think it was an idea I pitched to Heather, and Heather was supportive, and she went to the collaborative. But, yeah, I think for me, going there and seeing them in person, because I've written about these lakes before when I um, when I was previously at the Standard Examiner in Ogden. So I'd written about them before. I kind of knew them, a little bit about them. But I, I'll tell you, going there, it was a totally different experience. Like I think they needed to be seen to really be properly mm. reported on. And we mentioned Owens Lake is pretty much gone. That's toast. It's history. It's a dry lake bed. We'll talk about the dust and the poison in the air and whatnot. Mono Lake, not quite so bad off. It's shrinking, but not quite dead yet. Yes. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. So everybody thinks about Owens Lake as a dead lake. And that's what I thought, too, which okay. is why it was nice to go there in person and actually see it and talk to people who live and work there. So they have contained the dust. It was the historical largest source of man-made dust, human-made dust pollution in the United States. But the dust is contained. Like, it's mostly contained. And now Mono Lake actually is the largest source of human-caused dust pollution in North America. So, so thank, well, thank you very much. <laughs> so Owens Lake used to be terrible, used to be poison dust blowing everywhere, huge dust storms. There's pictures comparable to the Dust Bowl from the 30s and whatnot. So what'd they do? great question yeah. so if you look at an aerial photograph of owens lake it looks trippy it looks like a weird art project there's like this mosaic of structures where they're just trying different things in different parts of the lake and going with what works best it's been a very long and very expensive experiment so in certain parts of the lake one of la's favorite treatments is just to put down like a big thick layer of gravel which is very trippy to see, like two square miles of gravel. Um, and they like that because it lasts really long and it doesn't require any water. But the state of California, which owns a lake bed, does not like that because it provides no wildlife benefits. It uh, doesn't look very nice. It's very L.A. It's a parking lot. Yeah, mm. well, and ha walking around on this gravel bed, which I did in August, it was so hot. So I can't imagine what kind of microclimate that's creating. So some of the, the, the most common treatment they're using is shallow flooding, which kind of a common sense like a lake wants water so yeah. they you know put in this like system of like 14,000 miles of pipes which is mind-boggling to think about but so they put in this big network of pipes and they will during the dust season flood these little like sectioned off areas in the lake with water very shallow water but that had the um, unintended side benefit of creating habitat again for birds so all these birds have started coming back and the brine shrimp have come back and the brine flies so that's been kind of interesting Where's Where are they getting the water for these 14,000 miles of pipes? So from Owens Lake's uh, natural tributary, the Owens River, that L.A. would prefer to be 
sending down the aqueduct to their customers, to their residents. So they want to eliminate the shallow flooding as much as possible, even though it is the most effective and it's really great for the birds and the environment. Um, and another weird thing that they've tried is they'll, so they'll take less water and just wet the dirt or the lake bed, and then they plow it, kind of like a farmer plows a field before the farmer plants. Mm-hmm. And they found that has been really effective as long as it doesn't rain. Because, <laughs> like, counterintuitively, when there's water, it, like, breaks down the structures and then the dust kicks up again. You would think rain would help, but in this case, it does not. So that's just a few other places they planted vegetation, but obviously vegetation will only take in parts of the lake that aren't so hyper saline that the the plants can grow. Well, it would it would seem off the top of one's head that doing the shallow flooding, I mean, you only need a few inches of water, helps the birds, helps the vegetation, helps contain the, the dust, obviously. But then somebody in L.A. doesn't get water to cook pasta. So, well, I mean, it is a growing city, so I think they're more looking for it, looking to the future uh, and growth and climate change and drought. Can I and just... He- Heather, yeah, jump in. I just wanted to... Uh, Leah points out exactly the reason the collaborative sent them to California mm-hmm. because we are a solutions journalism initiative, so we want to see what is working in other places that Utah can learn from and knowing exactly what Owens Lake did to tamp down that dust maybe something that we all very much want to know about and, and what are the... What is their experience there? What are the limitations? That's exactly what we wanted yeah. to find out. And I will say the Great Salt Lake, we are already deploying engineered solutions to the lake. We sometimes don't think about it, but like the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge, that is not a natural river delta. That is delta. That is impounded wetlands, you know, man-made. They control the water that goes in and out of them. Or even the causeway, we have turned that into an engineered solution as the Salt Lake shrinks. They are, we talked about this the last time I was right, here. Right, either opening the causeway or right. closing the causeway to limit the salt north exactly, to south. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So we already are deploying engineered solutions on the Great Salt Lake. And there's no small irony here that when you talk about Owens Lake, if you dump gravel, you need trucks and fossil fuels. Absolutely. And if you're going to plow it up with huge tractors, you need diesel no small irony. And a lot of money, a lot of money. Well, yeah, you mentioned, I think, in your reporting, $2.5 billion. Yeah, and that's just to this date. L.A. will be there in perpetuity. It'll be there forever. It'll be in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah. But, but it, and it's a little tiny lake compared to our lake. I mean, it's a little puddle compared to the Great Salt Lake. It is, but like I mentioned before, all its water is spoken for, all its water is <laughs> consumed. In fact, it's moved out of the Great Basin into an entirely different geography, a different basin, so the water will never return we have in our favor the Great Salt Lake. You know, I know agriculture gets demonized a lot, but we have that flexibility that Owens Lake does not have. Mm-hmm. And had LA not diverted all the water, a lot of people made the case that Owens Lake was a very agricultural valley before. And if that had remained, that probably would have dried the lake anyway. And mm. then who do you go after to fix the problem? So they would kind of be in the same boat as us. Good point. Heather, May, um, in terms of the collaborative, uh, do you have plans or is there is there research for where you want to send the reporters next? I mean, there are these terminal lakes elsewhere in the world also that are suffering. I don't know if the solutions are any different in Iran or Kazakhstan. Lee and I were kind of joking about, yeah, next trip is Israel. <laughs> um, oh. But... Um, no, we haven't. We don't have something like that on the books. Uh, we do have another year of funding from Solutions Journalism Network, and then we hope to become sustainable um, with other donors. But um, 
yeah, that's up to the newsrooms to come up with, you know, where, where can they go next to investigate other solutions. Okay. And I think the reason we wanted to go to these lakes, even though they're small, um, is they're in the same geography as us. They're in the Great Basin. They have the same political system to us. You know, mm. if you go to a different country, you have different tools available or maybe not available to you that we have here. So I think, you know, and I, I don't know, you can just like really connect with the geography. It looks a lot like home. So hopefully it resonated uh, with our readers a little bit. Looks like the Great Basin. This is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. We're talking about and talking for the Great Salt Lake, which can't really speak for itself. But the collaborative, which brings together a dozen or more different newsrooms, as well as colleges, universities, students at Salt Lake Community College, libraries, all working together on this reporting. So keep it tuned. Want to talk more with Heather May and Leah Larson. But just so you keep it tuned, tonight on Your Community Connection, Democracy Now! rolls at 7 with Amy Goodman. Rude Awakening with Liz at 8. If you haven't heard that show, please check it out. And Maximum Distortion, that blast-off starts with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30. And every weekday morning, a brand new day, 6 a.m. with John Florence. What a nice day, nice way to... What a way, you know, John, what a great way to be to begin a day. So after we talk about the lake, I just want to have a brand new day tomorrow. So <laughs> so Leah, bring you back in here. There's mitigation. We can dump gobs of gravel, which salt lake, which which would be kind of impossible on the size of our lake, but it might work on the fringes. There's 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 restoration and there's mitigation. And so Take me through kind of for people who don't get it that, you know, you could restore the lake, which basically would mean water, right? Mm -hmm. Any other restoration possibilities? Well, I know Brad Wilson's build $40 million. A big chunk of that is going to wetlands restoration, which is an important, you know, the, the lake doesn't just at, end at its shore. It is a whole system. So its whole watershed needs help, I would say. You know, a lot of the rivers are impacted and the wetlands and we all benefit from all of those so well you mentioned that the 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 refuge the wetlands now are pretty much human controlled mm -hmm. which largely was done for the benefit of hunters not for the lake but i guess the lake benefits to some degree now i guess it depends on which values you're trying to help yeah it just <laughs> depends uh. <laughs> i mean there's some people i guess who would argue that the bear river bird refuge isn't even part of the lake i think you know hmm I'll have to think about that right. one. That could be another <laughs> show. Um, so there is all this toxic dust, and there can dust, and there can be mitigation. Um, but it's not like once the lakes are gone, we can build a new bird resort. Like you said, how many how many gallons of gas do these birds have to get to Canada or to some other lake? So if we don't save the Great Salt Lake, and these lakes in California are suffering, we're talking about it. Seems to me fairly much an unmitigated disaster on an international scale. Yeah, I mean, we face endangered species listings. That's going to be pretty painful. Uh, feds don't like that. No. <laughs> so, yeah, that's just one, one of the things we face. Yeah. Yeah, endangered species would become the people. Um, and, of course, it's the people who ultimately suffer, right? The, the dust storms. Uh, and we don't even need to talk about the skiers. Um, but Owens Lake Bed has become like a spot to shoot like sci-fi and dystopian movies because it just looks like hell on earth. Um, well, and westerns and like happy movies. It's not just. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, and we mentioned the two and a half billion dollars spent. Heather May, in terms of the collaborative, you know, decimating these waters hasn't helped any of the indigenous tribes. They were, of course, massacred, shot, killed, poisoned, etc. 
but are any of the tribes involved in the collaborative and to what degree and how? That's a good question. Um, no, they are not our members. Um, okay. So I should back up a bit. Um, we're looking for solutions, but we are not an advocacy organization. So Leah is not going to tell you like, this is the solution that this is the good one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we want to investigate them and let the public know about that and they can get involved in the ways that they want to. Um, we did have a collaborative uh, library event where we invited Darren Perry, um, the former chairman of the Shoshone tribe, and he spoke um, about the history of the lake uh, with his tribe. Um, but no, we don't have any tribal members at this point. Be I mean, that comes up with the Colorado and what sort of rights do tribes have to Colorado water that might have been promised in 1923 that they never got. Um, and so that seems an issue to, to me as percolating alongside all this collaborative work that you're doing is where do the indigenous peoples fit in? Um, I, th I think it would be a great story. I mean, we have another huh. year and maybe more, but to um, explore that relationship and, yeah, the water rights that, that might be with the tribe, um, I think that's a great project. We are, you know, we have so many um, newsroom members, but... Uh, the Great Salt Lake is only one part of their job, right? Like Leah covers many other things, yeah. um, even though it feels like <laughs> she's a full-time uh, lake reporter, but oh. you know they have so many other beats as well. Yeah. I will say, though, I was just up at the Bear River Massacre site, which is a trip that the collaborative also paid for. And as you know, the Bear River is a big, the biggest tributary to the Great Salt Lake, so it's part of that whole ecosystem and watershed. And as you probably know, the Shoshone tribe just recently reacquired that site. So that story is coming. Oh, good. And I do plan to do a, a bigger story on like the cultural heritage of the Great Salt Lake and the native tribes. Is the Bear Lake included in your reporting? Because it's got dams and levees to control in and out flow, and it's shrinking yeah. too. It, well, so it has to be managed to, to sit in a certain range because there was threats of lawsuits and, you know, they mm -hmm. try to avoid that, so they came to the table, which could also be like an interesting solution story for the Great Salt Lake, actually. Yeah. But yeah, that 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 lake has been engineered. Has. Well, and, and but it gets complicated very fast. You think of Bear Lake, which which is in two states, and the Great Salt Lake is probably impacted by I want to say four, if not five states. So any solution or any proposed solution is going to have to probably be bigger than just the Utah legislature. For sure. The Bear River, the biggest tributary, goes through three states. Yeah. So, and so, it has its own compact, just like the Colorado River. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, let's let's move to something that might be a little bit more optimistic here in the few minutes we have left. Um, Mono Lake has brine shrimp. I was very intrigued to learn from your reporting that they're a different kind of brine shrimp. And they don't feed shrimp farms in Southeast Asia, but they are harvested to feed exotic pet fish in fish tanks. Yes. So there's a business there, much smaller. Mm -hmm. um, so different kind of different different kind of lake. Um, but I wonder, you know, it still has water. Um, do you see hope? there and what's going on with Mono Lake that we could apply here? I mean, we talked about Owens Lake and the gravel and the plowing and the shallow flooding, but what's going on at Mono Lake aside from harvesting baby shrimp, brine shrimp? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and the reason that they only ha they have a smaller industry than we do is because their brine shrimp sink, and Mono Lake is a very, very deep lake, unlike the Great Salt Lake, but the Great, Great Salt Lake's brine shrimp eggs float, float so they're much easier to harvest and package so that's that's why fun fact um but yeah mono lake does kind of hold 
a hopeful message. Uh, a group of advocates for that lake went to court and fought for its right to exist. And they won that right, but they kind of left it up into the air as to how you, you balance the needs of L.A. with the needs of the lake. So the California Water Resources Board deliberated and studied and studied for years and years. Um, and they finally came up with the target elevation for Mona Lake and mandated that it must rise to that elevation. And that was in like 1992, 93. Mm-hmm. All these years later, haven't got there. So there's talk that it needs to be reevaluated. But what I would say is a good takeaway for the Great Salt Lake is at least they have a target, right? At least they know where they're trying to go. Um, we haven't set a target. And I know everybody's talking about ways to get more water to the Great Salt Lake. So, But how do we know when we've done enough? And as you know, if there's too much water in the Great Salt Lake, that's not good either. So something to think about. So at least they sort of have a target. But like you say, they've never reached it in 30 years. But at least they've got an idea. At least they have an idea. Uh, so we've been talking about all these terminal lakes, right? And and as the headline of one of your pieces says, every drop matters, right? Whether it's on an alfalfa field or somebody's lawn or a pot of soup or flushing a toilet or whatever, but I wonder about the water that's underground. Does your research and reporting include what's under the ground, or are we only talking about the surface? That is such a good question. So I think this is a very understudied issue, okay. but we are already seeing problems with the groundwater in the watershed. So if you think of the Wasatch back, um, which is where the headwaters of a lot of these tributaries are, so you would think they are abundant in water, but they the senior water rights are on the Wasatch Front. So they got to watch all their water, go down these rivers, down mm-hmm. to the Wasatch Front. So instead they drill wells to support their cities and their second, third, fourth homes, whatever the case may be. And they've had to put a lot of moratoriums on building there because they're running out of water. So I think that is a signal that all is not well underground either in the watershed. I think that was Camus back in July or August had a fire. Somebody's barn burned down and they used up like the entire water supply for the city, putting out the barn. Yeah, even, even in Cache Valley, I think it was last year, there was this town that was on the verge of totally running out of water. So they had to do an emergency, like don't water your lawns. Otherwise, we're going to have nothing by the weekend. And everybody was quite surprised by that. So even up in Cache Valley, you know, we're seeing Uh, signs. uh. So a couple minutes left. left. Heather may bring you back in here. Um, The future of the collaborative, like you said, you have funding for a year. Will you have reporters up at the legislative session? Yes, and they're not my reporters, but... um, Well, okay, okay, (laughs) thank you. But will there be collaborative reporters? She'll be herding the cats. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, oh. we hope to plan that out, um, you know, and how they all want to work together at the legislature. That's a new territory, right, for these newsrooms. Um, but absolutely, you'll see, uh, I'm sure, most newsrooms at the legislature. And I think this will be a very, uh, you know, the top issue, um, yeah. I imagine. Well, and I'm, I'm intrigued, as you said earlier, Heather, that you are solutions journalism. You're not advocates. That's right. And when it comes to the legislature, <clears throat> most people have fairly strong opinions, yay, nay, and in between. So I wonder if that might be a delicate balance to advocate for solutions and yet not run contrary and have people accuse you of taking sides. I don't know. Um, right. So I, I would put it that they are going to be um, reporting and investigating solutions that are maybe found mm. here or elsewhere, um, not advocating for them and not even advocating that lawmakers, you know, solve the crisis. That, that's not really the role of journalism. Um, but um, I'll speak for myself. Certainly, I want 
uh, I live in Utah and would want um, the crisis to be solved. I think everybody would say that who lives here, right? But we aren't going to advocate for one yeah. issue or another. Well, I think solutions journalism is so important these days. I mean, that's my bias. I don't mind sharing that. That it's, as we were talking earlier in the hour, it's so easy just to blab and be negative or report the horse race or today's emergency is now tomorrow's emergency. Forget about yesterday's. But what you're talking right. about are solutions that are ongoing. So, Leah, a couple minutes left. Do you see or to what degree do you see a strong political will to adopt either some of these California-style solutions or any other solutions. Do you see a political will? Wow. I mean, $40 million was chump change, but it was nothing last session. Well, Speaker Brad Wilson is having another great Salt Lake Issues uh, forum tomorrow, which is the last day of our project, actually, and we did not do that on purpose. But, oh. yeah, I mean, he, the, You'll be a there? gathering of lawmakers. I will be there. I will cover it. Uh, they haven't stopped talking about it. So seems the will might be there. And this this event tomorrow, I believe the public can stream it. I think you can I think you can stream it on the web. I don't know the details, but I did read that. I saw that on Friends of Great Salt Lake. You can register for it. I don't know if they're helping run it, but you can register to watch it. Yeah. Do you know site. Leah, do you know who all's there? Who all's part of this tomorrow beyond legislators? Um members of the congressional delegation are gonna be there. So Ooh. I think Mike Lee is gonna make an appearance. So not just local. It looks like they're looking at it from a national perspective. Oh, I wonder if Romney will show up. Very interesting. Um, he wasn't on the agenda, so. Okay, just wondered. So the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, as Heather, you mentioned earlier, only got a couple minutes left. Two dozen organizations, right? There's, there's media, colleges, libraries, and more. Media collaborators, print, radio, including KRCL, television, Salt Lake Community College Journalism, students working with Amplify Utah, and more. So... Do you anticipate keeping this going after the year? Do you anticipate other funding sources? Or I do. I think um, we've done so much in this first year, and I uh, people are uh, responding really well to um, us looking into the response to the crisis. So I think um, I could definitely see us uh, becoming self-sustaining after two years. And can I just plug, we have an event next week, October 19th, um, it's at uh, Day Riverside Branch in Salt Lake City. Ben Winslow from Fox 13 will be moderating a, moderating a panel discussion with Brad Wilson, Linda Freitas, and Sarah Knoll to talk about can the lake be saved and what needs to be done in the next legislative session. Oh, thank you. And again, greatsaltlakenews.org, all the stories. Heather May, thank you for your work. Thanks so much. And thanks for being here. And Leah Larson, thank you. I mean, it's a huge lift, you and all these other reporters and what you're doing. I mean, seeing a story, multiple stories in the Trib day after day after day, not to mention the Des News here on KRCL, Amplify Utah, and the journalism students at Salt Lake Community College. It's amazing. Well, thanks for your interest. No, and come back again. It's going to be great. Thank you to all the guests tonight on Radioactive. If you like the show and you want to share it, you can listen on demand with the KRCL mobile app. We always do that. Or you can stream it from the Radioactive archive under the Community Affairs tab, krcl.org. Questions, comments, suggestions, hit us up, radioactive at krcl.org. And thanks for plugging into your community. 
You can make a pledge. You can be first on your block to be a part of Radiothon. That starts Friday when the Punk Rock Farmer will be here with more True Tales of the Agrihood. That's Friday on Radioactive. Tomorrow, we're going to turn the mic over to Ma Black. She, of course, hosts uh, KRCL Night Estereo, um, and she can talk about whatever she wants on Radioactive. I think it's pretty amazing. Again, Radioactive at KRCL, if you're interested in sharing a story or you've got an idea for us, please, please reach out. As always, the views, thoughts, opinions shared by the guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the board, the staff, or the members of Listeners Community Radio of Utah. 90.9 FM KRCL. I'm Nick Burns. As always, executive producer is Laura Jones. I'm pleased to be here on Wednesday, ni Wednesday nights. Rather, Keep it tuned. Democracy Now! is next. KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org.